We're in Matthew chapter 19. You feel ready now? You kind of ready for the word? Matthew 19, open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. We're going to look at verses 16 through 30. The topic we're going to find there, Jesus emphasizes the difference between human goodness and his saving grace in his call to the rich young ruler to follow him. The title of our message, Goodness, Gracious, Great Call to Fire. (laughs) Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your word and the joy, Lord, of us being here today to study your word. I pray that our heart's focus would be upon Jesus Christ, how he is revealed in this word, his love for this lost young man, and of course, your love for us, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and all who agree said, amen. Americans today, compared to 55 years ago, own twice as many cars and eat out twice as much per person, but we don't seem to be any happier because of it. That's a quote from a 2013 article, The Psychology of Materialism and Why It's Making You Unhappy. According to the American Psychological Association, the overall well-being of Americans has, if anything, declined since the 1950s, while our consumption has only increased. Another quote, compared with their grandparents, today's young adults have grown up with much more affluence, less happiness, and much greater risk of depression and associated social pathology. Our becoming much better off over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. It's from a book called The American Paradox, Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty. We live in a consumer culture, and a lot of Americans struggle with materialism. Maybe not you, but obviously a lot of Americans do. The story of the rich young ruler that we're going to look at today touches obviously on materialism. There are two mistakes people commonly make when studying this portion of scripture. One mistake is to believe Jesus' demands upon the rich young ruler to give everything away applies to everyone. Jesus never made this a general command to all who would follow him, but especially to this one rich man whose riches were clearly an obstacle to his becoming a disciple. The second mistake is to believe that this applies to almost no one, certainly not to us, when we are clearly living in a consumer culture and there are those today for whom the best thing they could do for themselves spiritually is to radically forsake the materialism that is ruling and ruining them. The rich young ruler went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. It's commonly noted by commentators that he was possessed by his possessions rather than the other way around. Building upon that idea, I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, what on earth possesses you? And number two, what in eternity will you possess? Let's take a look first of all, verses 16 through 22 on what on earth possesses you. Now, I have to admit, it's hard to talk about money and materialism. It's always the other guy who is rich, not me, not any of us. And it's true that God does not demand of everyone what Jesus demanded of the rich young ruler. In the Bible, Abraham, David, and Solomon were all incredibly wealthy men. In the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea and Barnabas were men of wealth who did right with their riches. At the same time, there are severe warnings about the love of money and how we handle the money and possessions entrusted to us. 
Uh, Paul told Timothy, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I would suggest at the beginning of our study that we not immediately make either of the mistakes I mentioned, but that we allow God the Holy Spirit to apply his word to each of our situations. In other words, as much as we are able to remain unbiased and say, uh, you know, not say, well, Lord, I'm not rich, so this doesn't apply to me, or I am rich and I need to give away everything. Just hear it as it comes to you through the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit minister to you without going to extremes. And so in verse 16, now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that this man was rich. Matthew will tell us in verse 22 that he was young, and Luke tells us in addition that he was a ruler, and so hence he is forever the rich young ruler. Ruler refers to an official position in the local synagogue. This guy was a sincere, religious young man keeping the law of Moses blamelessly. If you were a Jewish parent, he's the guy that you'd want your daughter to marry. He wanted to know what good thing he must do. There was an ongoing dialogue and debate among religious Jews about the law of Moses. It contained some 613 commands, but the Jews were always trying to determine which one or ones was the greatest of them. The rich young ruler, therefore, approaches Jesus as if he were another rabbi in order to solicit his opinion on which is the greatest commandment. And so in verse 17, he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. First, before we look at Jesus' words, I have to notice that Jesus often answered a question with a question. Uh, and I would suggest that in your ministering to people, when they ask you questions, you question them about exactly what they're asking. Uh, it's surprising sometimes when people ask questions. It's not, they really don't know how to put their question, especially if they're not believers. We have our own kind of language and understanding of things. Sometimes we hear things that people aren't really asking. And so uh, don't hesitate to take it seriously and say, well, let me ask you some follow-up questions first. Make sure you know exactly what it is that is on a person's heart. Now, Jesus, before answering his question, challenged the rich young ruler regarding who he thought Jesus was. Either Jesus was good, or he ought not to have called him good, but seeing as there is no one good but God, Jesus, who is good, must be God. Did you follow all that? And so Jesus, a lot of times people say, well, Jesus is here denying that he's God. Just the opposite. He's saying there's only one good, and if you're calling me good, then you must think that I am God. Now, in fact, the rich young ruler didn't. He didn't know who Jesus was. This is Jesus' way of saying to him, who do you say that I am? You know, a lot of people have questions they like to ask God or they say, hey, I, if I could see God or when I see God, I'm gonna ask him this question. Well, the Lord has a question for them. Who do you say that I am? Uh, because the Lord's answers are less meaningful to a person if they're not a believer. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have no context with which to understand most of what the Lord says in the Bible. 
And the only real question is, why haven't you repented of your sin? Why haven't you come to know Christ as your savior? And so the really important question that you always wanna get to after you're answering your friends and family questions is, who do you say that Jesus is? Now Jesus said, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He was not suggesting that a person could be saved by keeping the law. You're gonna have to take this statement in context. As we're gonna see, he's using the law as it was intended to, to show the rich young ruler how he fell short of the perfect righteousness that the law demands. We ought to use the law just that way, showing folks why the Bible says that although they may seem good or at least less bad than others, they are nevertheless sinners who fall short of the righteousness of God. When we were in chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, We covered this, but uh, just briefly, um, you could ask a person, have you ever murdered anyone? You know, in terms of the Ten Commandments, let's pick one out and say, have you ever murdered anyone? And and, uh, most of the times you're gonna get the answer no. Uh, If you get the answer yes, pick another commandment and go on, you know, the different tack. But um, uh, have you ever murdered anybody? People are gonna say no, I I feel pretty good about keeping that commandment. I've never committed murder. Then you follow that up saying, have you ever had anger? Have you ever been angry with anyone? Well, yeah, I have. Well, then Jesus says that to be angry in your heart is equitable to murder. It's better for society that you just keep the anger in your heart, but the problem is in the heart. If you're angry, you've already murdered somebody in your heart. And the idea is to use the law to show somebody that you can't keep the law. So when you see the 10 commandments and you think, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. No, you're not, because you're breaking all of them in your heart before you know Jesus Christ. And that's why we can honestly say to people, They're sinners who fall short of the glory of God. They fall short of the perfection of God. The standard that God requires is absolute, perfect obedience from the heart, and that's why everyone is disqualified. And so Jesus is using the law to convict this young man and show him his heart. Uh, And so he goes on to say in verse 18, uh, the young man said, which ones? Uh, Which commandments? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On another occasion, later in Matthew, when asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus is going to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself yourself, and then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So that's his answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? Here, he kind of again ignores the young man's question and mentions five of the six commandments that govern a man's relationship with his fellow man, as well as the summary of that from the book of Leviticus. And that's because Jesus wasn't so much answering the rich young ruler's question as he was getting ready to use the law to convict him of his sin. Then the young man said to him, verse 20, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Now it's important we understand he wasn't being boastful or arrogant. It was possible to keep these five commandments at least outwardly. And in so doing, others would say that you were fulfilling the one commandment from Leviticus to love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul, for example, when he reviewed his life as a Jew before he came to know Christ, he said this in Philippians 3.6, he said, according to the righteousness stipulated in the law, 
I was blameless. So Paul could honestly say that he kept the law of God outwardly. The outward righteousness required by the law, he absolutely kept. And he wasn't uh, being boastful or prideful or arrogant. Uh, It was a religious um, statement about his life. But of course, as we just said, inwardly, he was a black-hearted sinner, and no one keeps the law from their heart. And so the rich young ruler, he had it all. I'm guessing he was ruggedly handsome on top of everything else. He would have been next season's bachelor, uh, you know, for those of you who waste your time watching that show. But anyway, no, I'm sorry, I had to say that. Now the bachelorette. No, I'm just kidding. I am. He had everything, but he remained troubled. He was sensing eternity in his heart, but with no assurance of his salvation, since salvation was by works uh, to him. And so verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Now this might sound like salvation by works, except for what we read in the next verse. When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here we see his heart exposed by the very law he claimed to keep. He hadn't murdered anyone. He hadn't committed adultery. He had not stolen or borne false witness. He respected his parents. Overall, he seemed to love his neighbor as himself. But inwardly, he coveted and lusted after riches. So when Jesus said, divest yourself, he said no, because he would rather have earth than eternity because he had great possessions and that was where his heart was. Uh, And so he could keep all of the commandments outwardly, but he had this idol in his heart, possessions and wealth that he refused to give up uh, and this was the Lord's way of exposing his heart as a lawbreaker. I wonder if this is why when reviewing the commandments, Jesus did not mention the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. It was the one commandment which the rich young ruler could not have honestly said, this I have kept from my youth, because his heart was captivated by his great possessions. And so Jesus demonstrated how to use the law. You show a person that if they perfectly keep the law, they can be saved, but that observing it outwardly is not keeping it at all, and that everyone has broken God's law in their heart. The rich young ruler brought to see his own heart and challenged to make a decision, chose earth over eternity. He went away sorrowful, still sensing eternity in his heart, but unwilling to repent and bring forth the fruits of repentance, which for him would have meant divesting himself of all of his wealth. He was sorrowful while yet retaining his great possessions. That's such a meaningful part of this story. It tells us something that we really know And that is that the things of earth can never substitute for the things of the spirit that your heart longs for. And all of the things that we seek after and that we go after that are less than Jesus, that are not Jesus Christ, ultimately cannot satisfy. His love of money kept the rich young ruler bound to earth rather than freed for eternity. Money may not be the issue for you, But before we ask about other things, which may be the issue, let's be sure that we don't have a problem with money. Forget about whether you think you're rich or poor and concentrate on your giving to God. Let's talk about giving for a minute. According to a recent article I read, and I quote, 
Tithers make up only about 10 to 25% of a normal congregation, that is people who give 10% of their uh, income to God. Only 5% of the U.S. tithes, uh, 80% of Americans only give 2% of their income, and according to statistics, uh, giving was greater during the Great Depression than it is now in our times of prosperity. Now, God is probably not asking you to give him every penny. I would be surprised if there was anyone in our church who would be convicted today by the Holy Spirit to divest themselves of all of their worldly goods and live a life of poverty. But if you give nothing or next to nothing to God, I think it is an indication that your possessions possess you in a fashion similar to the rich young ruler. It's one thing to say, well, I'm not rich, and Jesus uh, never said that you had to get rid of your possessions, but that doesn't excuse us from our paltry giving to God, and each of us individually needs to come to grips with that and understand whether possessions possess us or whether it's the other way around. Now, maybe possessions are not the problem for you, Is there something else or someone else that possesses you in a way that is hindering the call of Jesus to fully follow him? You might frame this with a different question, namely, what is it you would refuse to give up for Jesus if he asked you to? Jesus has every right to demand that we make sacrifices for him. After all, he left heaven for us to save us while we were yet sinners in rebellion against him. And so, Obviously, what he left and sacrificed was infinitely greater than anything that he would ask us to sacrifice. But more than that, more than him just asking us to sacrifice for the sake of sacrificing, Jesus knows that whatever or whoever we covet in our hearts can never satisfy our deepest longings because only he can do that. He doesn't want us to have that thing or that person and go away sorrowful in the end missing out on the joy of a relationship with him because we have an idol that we are coveting. If we insist on holding on to that which we covet, we are gonna find ourselves sorrowful along the way and in the end. Now some of us, it seems like there's one thing we seem to continually struggle with. It hinders being fully devoted to Jesus. We just can't seem to let it go. But for even us and others, there can be more than one thing or the one thing could be something different over time. And so it's a constant question that we need to be asking ourselves, what possesses me right now? The Apostle John, writing to believers, he said, keep yourself from idols, 1 John 5, 21. The devil utilizes the world to tempt our flesh with all manner of things that will divide our hearts and hinder our devotion to the Lord. Each of us individually, but with the Lord's help, must answer for ourselves the question, what possesses me? When we do, we should expect him to show us things we must sacrifice or give away or leave behind at least every now and then. If we never or rarely have a rich young ruler encounter with the Lord, we might not be listening to the still small voice of his spirit because this side of eternity, our hearts have a tendency to wander after things that uh, put themselves in the place that Jesus should occupy. And so um, in one sense, we're not the rich young ruler in a classic sense in terms of wealth and divesting ourselves of all of our wealth. But in another sense, the rich young ruler is an experience that each of us should have from time to time as the Lord comes and says, this thing, Gene, in your life 
It's a little bit too powerful. It has a little bit too much hold on you. It might be good in and of itself, but for you, it's something that is hindering our relationship and our fellowship, and so I'm asking you to put it down. And so spend some time with the Lord and talk about that with him. Now, in verses 23 through 30, what in eternity will you possess? First of all, what happened to the rich young ruler? We don't know. All we do know is that he had an encounter with the living God and chose to reject eternal life. Verse 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How many of you have ever heard in a Bible study that there was a, uh, a special gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the camel's gate? Have you ever heard that? Yeah, it's just not true. Uh, it's absolutely not true. It's never been found. It didn't exist. This is just an idiom in the Jew- Jewish language to show that something is impossible. Uh, Jesus wasn't saying it's really, 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 really hard, really hard for a rich man to get into heaven. He was saying it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven the same way that you can't put a camel, a full-size camel, not the cigarette, a camel through the eye of a needle, no matter how big that eye is. Uh, And so it's impossible. So prosperity is apparently perilous. For one thing, it gives a person a sense that God must be blessing him, which can give their heart a false sense of assurance that all is well in their walk with the Lord. It's just not true that God prospers you for obedience and uh, impoverishes you for disobedience. If that were true, then how do you explain all the wealthy non-believers in the world? Uh, So... And yet we, we hold on to that thought. We think that if we're being prospered, God must be happy with us and, and we need to set that aside. God's happy with us when we're walking in obedience and when we are pursuing holiness and those kinds of things, regardless whether he allows us to be wealthy or not. For another thing, riches can hinder a person's dependence upon God. Who needs God when you're able to provide for yourself? Uh, who runs to God for help when they can just write a check? And so it can be dangerous in that aspect. You remember that God promised Israel he would prosper them for their obedience, but it was always when they were prospering that they promptly forgot God and went after the idols of their neighbors in the world. So verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? This is one of the things that astonished them more than anything they had heard up to that point. And think of the things that they'd seen and done with Jesus, demons being cast out, legions of demons running into into swine and, and jumping over a cliff. I mean, they had seen fantastic things, and this is what astonished them. It tells us how deeply ingrained cultural prejudices are, cultural biases. Because more so even than than other cultures, the Jews, because God did promise prosperity for obedience in terms of the Old Testament covenants, they believed that if you were prospering, you were in, you had an in with God. And so when they saw this rich young ruler who was also walking blamelessly according to the law, it was the most astonishing thing that they had heard thus far when Jesus said it was impossible for him to be saved. If he couldn't be saved, who could? Well, it wasn't that he couldn't be saved, but that he wouldn't be saved because he refused to repent and give evidence of it by doing what the Lord asked of him. Uh, Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The salvation of anyone, rich or poor, is impossible except 
by the intervention of God. God draws men and women and children to himself by his grace operating on their hearts, revealing their sin and showing them the Savior. Salvation is all of God, but that does not cancel out your responsibility. By his grace, the Lord frees your will to receive him by faith or to reject him. His grace is not irresistible, but it requires a decision on your part. One theologian puts it like this. He said, we speak of the will of man being freed by grace to emphasize that people do not have a naturally free will when it comes to believing in Jesus, but that God must graciously take action to free our wills if we're going to be able to believe in his son whom he sent for the salvation of all. When our wills are freed, we can either accept God's saving grace in faith or reject it to our own ruin. In other words, God's saving grace is resistible, which is to say that he dispenses his calling, drawing and convicting grace, which would bring us to salvation if responded to with faith in such a way that we may reject it. We become free to believe in Jesus and we become free to reject him. Now, seeing that the rich young ruler would have had to sacrifice all of his possessions to follow Jesus got the disciples wondering what a person would gain from following him. And so in verse 27, Peter answered and said to him, see, we have left all and followed you, therefore, what shall we have? Now, Peter gets all beat up in commentaries for asking this question. Uh, because it seems like an unspiritual question. But I would point out to you as we go on, Jesus gives him a very direct spiritual answer. He doesn't rebuke him at all. He answers his question. Uh, And so I think this is a valid question as long as you keep it in perspective. You shouldn't sacrifice only to gain or only if you're going to gain, but there's nothing wrong with knowing what's in store for you in eternity. So if the Lord comes to you and asks you to make a sacrifice, you don't stop and say, well, Lord, I'd be willing to do it if you tell me what I'm gonna get out of it. You just do it because he's the Lord, but it's also okay just as a Christian to think about, Lord, what about my heavenly rewards? What is going to happen in the future? Even Jesus Christ, when we read about his sacrifice on the cross, knew that by it he was going to gain by bringing many sons to glory. We read of him in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the Lord understood there was going to be a gain. That, that there was something in eternity that was going to uh, be a reward for him. Now, he didn't, you know, when, when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in eternity passed before the earth was created, when they got together and they were talking about the plan of salvation, Jesus would say, well, I'll be willing to go if, I, if there's a gain at the end. If you can promise me more than I lose. It wasn't a, a negotiation. Uh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he volunteered to be the one who would come, take the body of a man, be the God-man forever, and redeem us from our sin, and he gained from it. And, And so that should be our attitude. There's nothing wrong with talking about rewards or wondering what heaven's going to be like. And so verse 28, so Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The regeneration was Jesus' way of describing what we call the kingdom of God on earth. God had promised Israel an earthly kingdom and Jesus came offering it as its king. The Jews, however, rejected him and when they did, they delayed the establishing of the kingdom. Jesus would be crucified, 
rise from the dead three days later, then ascend into heaven after another 40 days. There he waits to return in his second coming, and when he does, he will establish a literal, real, physical kingdom of God on the earth. Now, the earth will have been decimated by the great tribulation. Most of the earth's population is killed, the earth's water is destroyed, turned to blood. I mean, the earth is, is, uh, is like a disaster zone all over the planet. And so during that thousand years, Jesus says, I am going to regenerate that earth. My favorite phrase to describe that process is streams in the desert. It's derived from Isaiah 41, where the prophet says, I will open rivers in the high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry lands or the deserts springs of water. A lot of amazing things are going to happen on the earth and to the earth during the millennial reign, the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. And during that time, uh, Jesus says he'll, he'll sit on the throne. That means he'll rule over the earth from Jerusalem. And he says to his disciples listening right then, you will sit on 12 thrones and co-rule with me, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's a promise for those guys, minus Judas, because Judas would end up betraying Jesus uh, and uh, committing suicide and going to the place of perdition. And so in the book of Acts, We don't wanna get too deep into this, but in the book of Acts, the 11 guys, they say, hey, we need to have a 12th uh, apostle. Uh, And so they they, uh, went about a spiritual process of choosing the replacement for uh, Judas, who was Matthias. A lot of people say they were being carnal, they weren't being led of the Lord. Paul was the 12th apostle. That's not true. Uh, They understood that there was something called the 12, and um, they, decided to choose a 12th with the Holy Spirit's help. And after they chose Matthias, they are always referred to in the book of Acts as the 12th. Uh, and so when Jesus looks at these guys and says, you're gonna rule over the 12 tribes on 12 thrones, he meant it literally. Uh, Judas won't, but Matthias will. And so that's what Peter and the boys could expect during the kingdom age. So they said, Lord, we've left everything right now. In other words, we're suffering right now. And they were going to suffer a lot more than they realized. He said, but what's gonna happen later on? And Jesus says, well, in the regeneration, you're gonna rule with me. In the meantime, he promises them some important spiritual resources. Verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. This describes your spiritual resources now on the earth while you are asked to make sacrifices and surrender everything to Jesus. Uh, It talks about relationships and it talks about possessions when it says lands. And what Jesus is talking about here is not that you would give up any of these people or quit being married or walk away from a relationship. He's talking about your relationship with him taking priority over every human relationship and ultimately, when you take that stand, it could cost you any or all of these human relationships. And many of you have paid the price uh, at a certain level, at different levels. When you, uh, some of you have a, 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 would would be an honorable, but I guess you'd say in one sense a sad testimony of the day you told your family you were a born again Christian. And they began to reject you and to put you out and to ridicule you and to do all sorts of things. Uh, And others, sadly, maybe not here, but there are those who when that happens, 
they choose their natural family over their spiritual family. They choose their natural relationships over their relationship with Jesus Christ. They try and walk a kind of a crazy compromise, one foot uh, in the world and one foot with the Lord. Um, So, you know, this is a section on discipleship and Jesus is pretty demanding. He says, look, I, I, I am asking you to be willing to surrender everything, every relationship, no matter how hard that might be, every possession, no matter how hard that might be, but I'm promising you that now I will compensate you. Uh, you know, if, if you lose uh, uh, you know, uh, the relationship between your brother or your sister, well, you've got millions of brothers and sisters in terms of the body of Christ. And many of you have experienced a much closer relationship with Christians than you ever had with your natural family only because you share something spiritual that you don't share. Uh, You both have the Holy Spirit living within you and things like that. So that's what the Lord's talking about. He says, I have resources. I have spiritual resources for you during this time of sacrifice while you're waiting to get into the kingdom. Whatever you sacrifice on this earth waiting for the kingdom will be compensated. Uh, By the way, let me get back for just a moment about the statistics on giving by Christians while we're talking about this kind of thing in terms of uh, people helping each other and uh, what we lose. Uh, Think of what we could gain. In that same article, the author said, what would happen if believers were to increase their giving to a minimum of say, let's 10, of, of let's say 10%. So not putting this on anybody, this is a for instance. So this guy's saying, what if every Christian gave 10%, okay? He said there'd be an additional $165 billion a year for churches to use and distribute. The global impact would be phenomenal. Here's a few things the church could do with that kind of money. Uh, 25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and death from preventable disease in just five years. 12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. 15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. 1 billion could fully fund all overseas mission work, and it would leave $110 billion left over uh, for ministry expansion. And so there's plenty of money, you know, to, for every, not just for Christians to take care of other Christians but for Christians to solve most of the world's financial issues. Now notice the words that close verse 29. And inherit eternal life. I like it's tacked on there as if it's an afterthought when in fact it's the most exciting part of what Jesus says. That's the greatest reward of all. Even though we will enjoy spiritual resources in abundance on the earth, times are gonna be tough, but we're looking beyond earth, beyond even the kingdom of God on the earth to eternity where we will live forever with Jesus Christ in our mansions, walking on streets paved with gold, knowing one another perfectly, without sin, with no more tears. It's going to be glorious. What an understatement and eternal life. It's the greatest news a sinner could hope to hear and it's the greatest thing a suffering servant can hold in their heart. Verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Our methods for judging spiritual success are frequently wrong. Think in the context, the disciples thought the rich young ruler would be first in line to inherit the kingdom of God and that they would be last, obviously. But Jesus says, no, just the opposite. You you can't judge the way man judges. You have to look at the heart. Uh, And you guys, disciples, you have every right to think that you will be first. 
In the kingdom, the simplest believer is ahead of the rich young ruler. I came across this quote, I think it kind of summarizes this whole section. Some people are so poor that all they have is money. Some people are so poor, all they have is money. And that certainly was true of the rich young ruler. If you're not a believer, what does it profit you to gain the whole world if in the end your soul is lost? I think that's, the answer to that is obvious. If you're a believer, you're rich in faith, you have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, and you have a glorious entrance into eternity waiting you. Think about it. When you're weighing uh, material decisions and consumer decisions, only you can make those decisions. I can't tell you what to do. The church shouldn't tell you what to do. Um, you know, a lot of churches do. You, you know, they tell you how many cars you should drive, you know, especially when you get into building programs. I've seen a lot of building programs. They say if you have two cars, you should sell one and give one to the church and you should do all these things. You do whatever you want. You read the word and do what God tells you to do. Just make sure it's God telling you and that your possessions don't possess you but that you possess them and are using them for the glory of God. And, and talk to the Lord about the glorious entrance awaiting you in eternity and how you can have treasure stored up for yourself there. Let's live in the way that reflects the joy of eternal life. Amen? Let's pray together.